0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Rob Dunn about the new book, A Natural History of the Future What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species. A leading ecologist argues that if humankind is to survive on a fragile planet, we must understand and obey its iron laws. A Natural History of the Future sets a new standard for understanding the diversity and de- de- destiny of life itself. Well, Rob, welcome to the show.
1: It's my pleasure to be on the show.
0: So, how are you? How was your week?
1: Um, how was my week this week? I think it was. It was. It was quite well. It's the end of the semester. The, Um, Both our kids were sick with uh, COVID, Um, a little bit worn down, but otherwise good.
0: Oh, no, I'm so sorry.
1: Oh, they were fine, but it just meant being out of school and adjusting socially to, you know, having our kids in the basement and trying to get them to eat outside so that we didn't get COVID. Uh, But everybody's healthy now, so the end result is good.
0: Did you manage to catch some sunshine?
1: Yeah, at this point in, in Raleigh, we're, we're more or less in summer, so it's, um, uh, what is it, 20 degree C days and uh, lots of sunshine, but we're moving toward the too hot time of the year.
0: So can you tell us, what do you do?
1: So I'm an ecologist and evolutionary biologist by training, and I, I mostly study the biology of daily life. Um, and the extent to which that biology o- obeys life's general rules and so sometimes that's the biodiversity and belly button sometimes it's sourdough bread other times it's the movement of cats but it's all the ways in which the biological world uh interacts with our daily lives
0: wow how did you get interested in this
1: so so i, I um so i gr- grew up in um in rural michigan in the northern u.s and I uh, grew up largely outside and I ended up at a college thinking I'd be uh, an economist or a banker or something along those lines. And I met these people at the university who who had muddy boots. They had cages in their offices. They had nets. And I didn't know who quite these people were. And they would turn out to be biologists. And I recognized them in them what I somehow uh, sort of intrinsically was. And so I started off in biology really as an undergrad Um, but when I started off I imagined I wanted to study remote rainforests and so most of my early career was working in Bolivia and Peru and and Ghana and Australia studying the general rules of life in rainforests and over time I would increasingly recognize that all of the things I studied about life and studying rainforests also applied to these these daily environments and that if I could if I could study these same phenomena right where people lived that it, it made those phenomena immediately relevant to millions and millions of people and and that really resonated for me and so I I eventually shifted to, to focusing most of my work on backyards and kitchens rather than um, you know the Amazon rainforest or you know Queensland and Australia.
0: And along your career journey were there mentors that really supported you?
1: Yeah, at, at, at different points, um, different people. Early on, I had a um, a couple of great biology mentors. Paul Alexia was one of them at Kalamazoo College, where I was an undergrad. But the other part of my life is as a writer. And I would say an equally important mentor was the poet Conrad Hillberry, um, who was very important to me in terms of getting me to think about writing, to love writing. Uh, and then I had a great mentor for graduate school, Rob Caldwell, who studied um, little mites that live in the nostrils of hummingbirds and when the when the hummingbirds pollinate flowers the mites run down the the beak of the hummingbird to look for other mites mm. um, and he was a great mentor in, in that he made me pay attention to the details of nature but also its generalities and he also gave me space for the other parts of my life so for example my writing and then then I've been lucky throughout to have other mentors along the way so I've um it's been a I have great good fortune in that regard. And then I've also had times uh, when people gave me the space to do new things, even if I didn't quite know where those things were going, which wasn't quite great mentorship so much as it was uh, just the willingness to look the other way while I was exploring, which I think sometimes can be just as important.
0: And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers?
1: <laughs> So, what I wish I understood when I was a student researcher is that most of the interesting things that can be studied have not been studied yet. And most of the big discoveries that could be made haven't been made yet. And so, if you're studying something boring, move on. Um, All around you are these unknown things and, and give yourself enough time to pay attention, give yourself enough time to read broadly, to make connections between fields. Um, that I, I assumed when I was starting to work more and more on humans, that I would get to humans and I would find that basically we understood everything about humans. And so I'd have to focus on the details. Mm. And what I found instead is that even when we focus on on human bodies, that most of what we, we could know about humans is still unknown. We don't understand how the gut works. We don't understand how the gut's connected to the brain. We're still figuring out what the appendix does. The gallbladder is a mystery. Um, our armpits produce all this food for microbes. We don't quite know why. And so everywhere there are these great mysteries. And so the young versions of myself out there and sort of just other young people in general, I would say, you know, if you're on something boring, keep, keep moving because there are these great big ideas out there still for you.
0: Oh, beautiful. So your latest book is a natural history of the future. What the laws of biology tell us about the destiny of the human species. So, how did you come to writing it?
1: So so what um, I'm trained as an ecologist, and when I meet with other ecologists, there are all these things that we know about the world, that we've discovered about the world, that we take for granted. And when we get together and have a beer and talk about the future, those things we know about the world are part of what we imagine for the future. They're part of how we plan with regard to our own families and where we live and how we invest money and all these things. But 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 those are understandings of the world that in some ways are a little bit secret to, to everybody else. And they're not secret because we mean the ecologists mean them to be secret. They're secret because ecologists mostly speak to other ecologists. And, and we assume that the things we know other people know too. And and so part of the origin of the book was coming to terms with, well, what do we as a group of individuals, as ecologists and evolutionary biologists actually already know about the future based on the general rules that we've discovered? And how do I best share that understanding with a broader audience? And so the book emerges in that context. And the exciting thing that happened as I started to write the book was that as I began to think about these general rules of ecology and to think about them in the context of the future that there were these things I could hold up that other people seem not to have noticed yet that were obvious if you had the tools of ecology, but only if you pointed those tools toward the future. And, and so the, the book is really a chance to, to have this community of scholars um, share their voices with the broader public ab- about the future. And, and what emerged as I wrote the book was a recognition that the book stands to some extent in opposition to the future that we tend to imagine. I think we tend to very often imagine a future that's primarily technological. We see Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos flinging themselves into space. We see all the ways we're connected technologically and all of nature recedes into the distance. It's very quiet in our daily lives. And so what the book was also doing was to to bring these stories up and, and remind us that regardless of how technological we become, these rules of nature will still apply. If Elon Musk plants a group of people on Mars, the rules of nature will still apply. You know, in the hottest parts of Earth, the rules of nature will still apply. If we extinguish half of the species on Earth, the rules of nature will still apply. And and somehow we, we forget that. And so it was a chance to bring up those stories.
0: So let's explore this fascinating subject a little bit more. And if we start with the very beginning, so how did our species perceive and relate to their environment in our early history?
1: So uh, every species has a bias with regard to how it it relates to its environment as a function of its senses. And so if you think about a microbe, its environment is mostly perceived as a function of the the chemical environment, the chemical world. It, It senses chemicals and responds to them. It's, it's unable to sense sort of the visual world. It doesn't hear things very well. In, this, in the same way, our species evolved uh, to depend on some senses more than others. And so we really depend to a great extent on the visual landscape. And that was extraordinarily useful in the context of our evolutionary history. You know, it allowed us to see fruits and choose among fruits. It allowed us to see snakes and avoid snakes. But as we've come to change the world, it, it also meant that a lot of the things that we've changed as we've moved around the world have been things where we've made those changes without the fully seeing the realities of that world. And so if, if you look around your world right now, wherever you are, the species that are going to be most conspicuous to you are plants and birds and mammals and maybe to a lesser extent, insects. So they're probably not insects because people mostly don't pay attention to them. But the truth is that the world is mostly insects and microbes. And so we we evolve with this kind of bias in terms of how what we think the world is, which really f- frames uh, what we think is happening all around us. And I think one of the conspicuous ways in this which this occurs is if you think about the room you're in right now, wherever it is, you probably in the room don't see any other species. But we know from our studies that we've done on houses, that the average room has many thousands of microscopic species. And so our eyes tell us there's nothing there. The reality is that there's this complex world. And so, you know, that particular aspect of our evolutionary origin really influences what we see and study and make sense of around us. And so it's a very anthropocentric, um, anthropocentric sensory bias.
0: So in your book, you speak about the laws of nature. So what are some of them? So
1: so, um, one of the laws of nature relates to area and islands. And and so we know as we've studied remote oceanic islands, that the bigger an island is, the more species are likely to evolve on that island. This has been studied in great detail. Um, And, on remote islands it's interesting because it tells us where to go to find really interesting species we would find nowhere else. but it's also been employed to help us think about what happens on land when we take island like habitats and we shrink them and so if you shrink a forest habitat, there's fewer and fewer species as that forest gets smaller and smaller and so there's this relationship between area and a number of species that we understand very well we've studied it again and again but the and, and it's a very fundamental uh, law of the biological world. But what we often neglect in, in thinking about that is the reality that in addition to these habitats that are shrinking, whether those be real islands where we've carved off a lot of the habitat where species can live or just a patch of forest or a patch of grassland, there are also habitats that are increasing in size. And this may seem really obscure, but, but it's very relevant to our daily life because it's in those habitats that are increasing in size that we expect to see the origin of the most new species. And so we expect to see the origin of new species in our farms, and we expect to see it happening in our cities. And in fact, this is actually what we're seeing. We're seeing very rapid origins of new species in these expanding habitats. And so this is a pretty fundamental feature of nature, and whatever habitats we make ever bigger, that's where we're going to see the origin of new species whatever habitats we make smaller and smaller, we're going to see more extinctions of species. And, and how this intersects with our daily lives is that the default uh, with regard to which species are invo- evolving in these bigger and bigger habitats is, is, that, is that they tend to be species that, that we don't like because, mm-hmm. for example, in our cities, the species that are most likely to thrive are the ones that can sneak around our attempts to kill them. And and so the species that are evolving most quickly are new kinds of rats, new kinds of pigeons, new kinds of bedbugs, new kinds of cockroaches. And so this follows very logically from our understanding of the workings of nature, and, and it portends the kind of world we're creating, but it's certainly not what we would want to create if we were thinking about this rule. And so this is a case in which we can predict what's going to happen, but we've talked about it very little and, and we do little, very little to plan some alternate evolutionary scenario. And, and so the, the rules of nature are often like that, that the, we understand their consequences, e- even if we don't bear those consequences in mind when we're planning for them for the future.
0: So many of us would have heard about the natural selection as well. So how does this play into this? Is it more like a human directed selection then in this case?
1: Sure. So so Darwin, Charles Darwin is who helped us understand natural selection along with lots of people since. And w- we understand three major factors that influence the rate of natural selection. And one is the size of population. So the bigger a population is, the more likely there are some individuals that have mutations. Uh, the second thing that's important is if populations become isolated, evolution can happen more rapidly because um, the population in one area might be subject to a different kind of pressure, a uh, different climate, a different anything else than another population. And, and the third thing that matters is the selective pressure. What is it that's killing some individuals and not others? And, and how forcefully is it doing so? Well, in, in our urban environments and in our farms, we've pulled all those things together in an extraordinarily uh, forceful package. And so the species that do well in cities, they now have enormous global populations. Think about Norway rats or pigeons. Um, Those populations historically had movement between them. So if you think about ships 200 years ago, they were moving from China to North America and back. And so a a rat in China and a rat in North America might breed. and, And if they bred, that prevented them from going on independent evolutionary trajectories but now we've, we've sealed up our ships um, much more tightly. And so the rats don't move as much. And so now they're a little bit separated and now we superimpose on top of that, that we, we try with all our might to kill many of these species. And so there's a very strong selective pressure. And this is the perfect recipe for really rapid evolution, given our understanding of the law of natural selection. And and we're now seeing this. And so, for example, the just in New York City, the rats in different parts of New York City appear to be diverging from each other on separate evolutionary trajectories. The rats from New York and from Boston are diverging from each other. The rats from New York and Boston are even more divergent from the ones in Louisiana. And so if you let this play out long enough, and it's not that very long, I mean, a couple more human generations, those start to become different species with different traits depending on the clim- climates of the different cities, but also the different biocides we use to try to kill the rats. And the rats are just an example of what's happening with thousands and thousands of species. And so the in the context of our cities, the law of natural selection shows us what we can expect with regard to the details of these evolutionary uh, stories that are unfolding. And that happens in our hospitals, it happens in our homes. It relates to what happens when we, what happens when we overuse antibiotics, when we use pesticides in our front lawns. And it's interesting because Darwin imagined that evolution often proceeded very slowly. And what we're learning is that it, it can be very quick and it's often quickest right where we live um, and often to our detriment. And we saw this with the virus that causes COVID-19, that, that new strains of the virus continue to evolve. They evolve in response to vaccination. They were evolve in response to immune responses. And we're seeing them evolve in different ways in different places on, on earth. And so it's actually a pretty emblematic case of what's happening with lots of species.
0: This is really interesting because we we've known about this before, didn't we about from antibiotic resistance, for example.
1: Yes, certainly. We, we we've known about aspects of this for a long time. Um, But I think we tend to think about the individual cases in isolation, and we don't step back to think, okay, well, the story of antibiotic resistance is like the story of pesticide resistance, is like the story of rodent side resistance, and that these are part of a a bigger collective societal experiment that we're doing uh, around the world.
0: So in addition to natural laws, you also speak about the laws of human behavior. So what are those?
1: Well, I mean, so there are various laws of human behavior. I mean, one, I sort of already mentioned that we have certain biases um, with regard to what we pay attention to and don't pay attention to. Uh, and so, for example, we pay attention to really big species. Um, we have a tendency to imagine ourselves as the central figure in Earth's story. Uh, and this turns up all the time. If you I mean, read news stories about extinction, that very often those news stories will feature uh, statements about the end of nature. And if we focus just on the human story and nature as it relates to humanity, there are certainly contexts in which uh, the end of nature that benefits humans, the end of nature in which humans can be successful is very threatened. But, but the truth is that species that are not like us and that often we don't like, um, that, that there are many species that actually benefit from our worst assaults on earth. And, and so we're, we're biased to thinking that species like what we like. And, and in fact, there are species living in virtually every condition on earth that we've ever studied in deep sea vents, as far deep into the earth's crust as we can drill um, in hot springs that are so hot and toxic that they're almost impossible to study. And and so Right now, almost any condition we can create with our toxic lifestyles, you know, with plastic pollution, with oil pollution, with climate change, it nonetheless favors some species. And, and, and so what we face is not the end of nature, but an end of, the end of nature that is permissible to, to, to human life, that supports human life. And so our bias is to think about in this context, earth from our own lens. And it's a very hard um, perspective to shake uh, in the same way that it's hard to it's hard to think consciously about all the small species around us, even though they vastly outnumber us, that that we're very, very, very wed to our senses. We're very wed to the conditions that our bodies evolve to um, appreciate. And I guess we're, we're wed to our own persistence. Right. We, we like our we like, our, like ourselves and um have collectively decided it's more important to preserve humans than other species, uh, which is an interesting philosophical question. Um, but one where we almost always come down in favor of ourselves.
0: It sounds like we're cutting the branch that we're sitting on, but the rest of the forest is still going to survive after.
1: Yeah. We're, we're, we're cutting a big branch that we're sitting on, but, but there's certainly still a lot of, of forest left. Yeah. I think that's an apt description. Um, And we've cut a lot of it already, but there's still enough to hold us if if we're careful.
0: So are humans unique in this way that um, species treat their environment?
1: No, um, we're probably unique in the speed of of the change, the speed with which we've cut our branch. Mm. Um, You know, the first microbes that could produce oxygen uh, we're actually that produced oxygen as waste were actually not very tolerant of the oxygen they were producing. And, and so there are examples in, in early evolutionary stories of these major global changes where organisms uh, polluted themselves to extinction. And so oxygen production would be an example like that Ma- major global changes as a result of the ability of, of organisms to produce oxygen. Uh, not nearly so rapid as the changes we're seeing and, and the difference that's often pointed out between those sorts of changes of which there are quite a few in our own moment is that we're, we're at least partially conscious of what we're doing. That, that w- we know we're sawing the branch on which we sit. Uh, and so in, in theory, we have the ability to pause and think about better solutions. And, and so I In some very important way that makes our own moment quite different from those previous evolutionary moments. Uh, And and we have philosophers that can help us to think about that moment. The the bacteria that polluted themselves out of existence didn't have philosophers around to to tell them how they should think about these things.
0: That's deep, yeah. So another aspect of um human nature, if I can put it this way, is that we tend to think of ourselves as a, of ourselves as an ultimate creation in terms of intellect and things like that. But that's not often the case, isn't it? There are some other species that might be on par or even better than us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, um it's another great question. Uh so I can I can answer this two ways. I mean, one is that there are other animal species that are that are very intelligent and in, in how they deal with change, and and for example, if we think about um, birds in general, we know that big brains and, ver- and birds have tended to evolve in conditions that are variable through time. And so, and big brains are associated with inventive intelligence. So the ability to find new kinds of food, the ability to store new kinds of food. And, and so those birds use their brains sensibly to buffer change through time. And we're not actually very good at that anymore, uh, at figuring out how to use our brains to, to buffer the change that's coming to us. You know, in the, in the U.S. in the last couple of decades, Some of the fastest growing parts of the U.S. are areas that are right at sea level or in the driest deserts in the United States. And and these are places we know hard times are coming. And and yet we're still actively moving toward them. And so in some real way, you could say that the crow that stores food or that knows how to look for different food in different times is be- behaving with more intelligence than we are collectively at this moment, um, and I can explore that in a little more detail. But I, I, I think an argument can be made there. A second kind of answer would be that there, are, there are many species on Earth with other kinds of intelligence, and so if we look to the ants or if we look to swarming bacteria, their intelligence doesn't reside in a big conscious brain, but in collective behaviors. And interestingly, a, a lot of the technological change in the last years has been built around developing algorithms that mimic what ants or bees or termites do mimicking their kind of intelligence their kind of way of coping with with new environments and i think it's tricky to compare you know is a, is an ant colony more or less intelligent than an individual human and the i think the simple way the simple way that people would often look at this as they would say, well, the, you know, the ants didn't invent cities and they didn't figure out how to burn coal and they didn't do all these things, which, which is true, but those are all the things we value as a function of our ability to being able, of being able to invent them. And those things are not necessarily things that have benefited us in the long run. And, and, and so to ask the question, you know, is an ant society smarter than human society and in the ways it uses resources? And sustains those resources. Um, I think there's a fair argument to be made that, that quite a few ant species are, in fact, uh, more intelligent than us by by some metric like that. Now they have all sorts of other unique ant brutalities. You know, when they're when they're old, get sick, they just throw them out. But uh, and and so there are no panacea model for us. But but I think it's it's useful to recognize these different kinds of intelligence and to think about what can we learn from these as We think about our own future
0: some, some ant species also also invented agriculture didn't they? They can can farm
1: yeah, in, independently so there are ants that farm uh, uh, fungus there are termites that farm fungus, there are ants that farm um, aphids and scale insects as though they were cows and and what we know from from those cases is that their systems for farming are far more efficient than our systems are and and so you know what can we learn from them and the truth is we've we've barely begun to ask that question
0: so are we really limiting ourselves when we put this uh, mask of the anthropocentrism on
1: yeah a- absolutely we li- when we when we see that see the world only through our narrow lenses um we think the world is about us which is very often detrimental to us uh and we fail to recognize all of the ways that we're dependent on other species. And we also fail to recognize our potential to use other species. And, and so just as an example, you know, most of our medicines ultimately clump, come from plants or microbes, but we've barely begun to scratch the surface of what's possible from plants or microbes. And on the microbial side, just as an example, there are 30,000 named bacteria species and the estimate is that there might be as many as a trillion bacteria species on earth. And, and so to the extent that there are medical answers that lurk in those bacteria species, we're still in the dark ages. And that, that is partially because of our anthropocentric bias that we just don't even see them as, as being there. But, but I think the other bias there, and this is another sort of behavioral bias, is that we imagine ourselves to be independent and this is maybe more western but but the roots of it around the world and so we imagine that we can we like the sort of elon musk's narrative that if we're just smart enough we can make a spaceship we can take the species to another planet that we need and we'll be fine and what that view really um ignores is that the average human life is dependent on tens of thousands of species we depend on species in our guts for digestion and our mouth for our well-being and our skin to defend us against pathogens we depend on our crops we depend on our domestic animals our crops and domestic animals depend on other species and those dependencies are often far more intricate than we think they are and The ultimate experiment in in this regard, I think there are two. One one is the International Space Station, which I'll come back to in a second. And the other is what are called notobiotic animals. And so notobiotic animals are lab animals that have been produced in a way that they're totally free of microbes. And what we know about those animals is that you can keep them alive long enough to do experiments on them, but, but they're very sick. Their immune systems are a mess. And... If you let them out of the the microbe free facility, even for a second, they die very quickly because they're susceptible to virtually every infection. And so that's one kind of model. So, this, you know, if Elon Musk wants to go and, and, you know, just him and his friends, and they're not going to take any other species with them except for their crops, uh, it's a gross misconception because we need these other species. But also because we're not very good at ridding ourselves of these species even when we want to. And that's where the International Space Station comes in. The International Space Station has tried very hard to create a relatively sterile environment on the space station. And and yet there are thousands of species of bacteria, tens if not hundreds of species of fungi, tapeworms, dust mites, all zooming around the International Space Station, even though we've done our best to keep all of those species at bay. And where that becomes a problem is if you go to try to imagine taking the international space station or taking another space vehicle to, a another planet, you're going to have all these species with you and they're going to interact with whatever other species you bring to eat or you bring to keep yourself healthy. And the, the best case of this so far is that astronauts have tried to grow a few sort of garnish, uh, vegetables on the international space station. so there've been experiments with lettuce and I think cabbage. And one of the things they found is that they're difficult to grow because they've already accidentally introduced plant pathogens to the international space station. Mm. And so now what they're trying to do is to bring beneficial microbes to the international space station that will help to keep the plants on the international space station safe. And so even in this very sort of dollhouse version of how we might imagine going it on our own, we're still so, so complexly uh, interconnected with these other species that we, we can't even grow a couple of heads of lettuce successfully. And, and so these connections are far deeper and more, more uh, intricate than I think we tend to imagine because we imagine ourselves to be independent, because we imagine ourselves to be alone, uh, when in fact, everything good about ourselves is is as much to do with our connections to other species as it is to, uh, to do with our own genes and cells on their own.
0: So you mentioned this in the beginning that when we think about the future, we think about this techno-utopia and now thinking about everything that we already learned from you now. So what kind of future are we creating? So,
1: so, so I think uh, this is a place where where we as ecologists and evolutionary biologists and other scientists really need the help of writers because we need writers to help us think through the different kinds of s- social futures that we could have. So as to help us think about what different biological futures, those social futures portend. And, and, and so I have started to work with some speculative fiction writers to, to begin to think through what these different futures might look like, but, I can share a couple and one would be our kind of status quo future. And this is a future where our our cities are ever bigger. Um, The most rapid evolution is happening in our cities. The cities become diverse with species we don't like and forests and grasslands become ever smaller. And those become the places we see many species go extinct. And then where we also see that many of the services we depend on in nature begin to break down because we've not paid attention to them. And so, for example, most of our water systems depend on wild forests to help keep that water clean. We don't pay attention to that until it breaks down. And then when it breaks down, we have to find technological solutions that are often uh, poor proxies for what used to be. And so that's maybe our... Our, our default scenario, a world of uh, extraordinarily diverse rats and roaches that are beautiful in their differences, but uh, probably not what we all hope for. I think as we look around the world, at the same time, though, we see alternate futures unfolding. And so we we might imagine a, a future scenario in, in which we dramatically reduce our use of fossil fuels, we keep climate change uh, a little more under control, totally under control, is not in the cards anymore. Um, we can serve more forests, more grasslands and their processes. And maybe our connections to other people are in our communities mostly, and then our connections to nature are in our local nature, and maybe we travel among places virtually rather than in person. Uh well, in, in that scenario, we still keep lots of wild biodiversity and, and we see other evolutionary scenarios unfolding. Maybe we see the evolution of new kinds of, of horticultural plants in each city. And so each city would be marked by its its own special flowers, its own special wines, its own special foods that are really locally adapted and, and beneficial. And we found ways to manage the species we least like that prevent the evolution of resistant forms. And we have the ability to do that. And so that's another kind of scenario. Um, And we could go on exploring, well, what if socially we do this instead? What if we do that? And, And we know enough as ecologists and evolutionary biologists to then make some predictions about what we would see biologically. But we really need the help of social scientists and writers to think about, well, what might humans do? And my own guess is that it's globally varied that we see different things and different evolutionary scenarios, different ecological scenarios in different places. The other piece of the immediate future is what happens with regard to climate change globally. And the effects of climate change obey the, and life obey the same rules that the effects of urbanization or agriculture do. And so what we're likely to see is species evolving to take advantage of the climates that are emerging and becoming ever bigger. Um, And one of the tricks with that is some of the climates that are going to to become ever bigger are climates that are actually very inhospitable to human life. And we actually don't know which organisms like those climates. And so it, it is more or less a blank slate which species will thrive in those conditions. And so I think we will in the next 10 10 to 20 years, we're going to start to see that scenario unfolding unless we make radical changes, which is new evolutionary and ecological scenarios in these hottest places on earth, the the driest places on earth. And we know how to think about what might happen there, but we actually don't know uh, very much about which species are going to live there because nobody likes to study those places. And so we've Mm -hmm. ignored them. And so, so these parts of the future that we can kind of see, and then there are these parts of this future uh, that we don't know enough to see yet. And then there are parts of the future that really depend on what we collectively do.
0: So what would be your desirable future trajectories and how could we possibly make it happen?
1: So my, my desirable f- future trajectory would be that we, we come to conserve those ecosystems and their services that we already depend on and value the benefits they provide. And we do this some places in patches, you know, the, the forests around New York City are conserved because uh, it's recognized that, that they provide water purification services to the city of New York. And so one piece that we need to do is to, is to make sure we're conserving those habitats globally that are benefiting humans not because they're beautiful but they are but because we need them in order to be healthy and and well in the, in the same way we can start in our cities to think about how do we design cities so that we benefit from those services it's well documented that people that live near big trees r- receive direct psychological benefits from those trees we're starting to understand that people that live near a diversity of plants r- receive benefits to their immune systems from the microbes associated with those plants. And so how do we build cities where we garden in those values of nature? And then at the same time, we still have to confront these species that we don't like that that endanger us. And I think what we have to do there is to really imagine how do we target those specific species without trying to kill everything? In ways that slow their evolution, and we actually know how to do this in many cases. We know how to do it with cancer, we know how to do it with antibiotic use, we know how to do it with some pesticides. Uh, but but it takes planning, and and we're not always prepared to do that planning, but but that in in my more positive scenario, we would we would do that hard work um, and ret- when you have an infection rather than attacking it with an antibiotic that kills all of your skin microbes and the infectious microbe. We, we use an antibiotic that targets just that microbe that's causing the problem. Um, and, and so moving toward that sort of more sophisticated response to the species, we want to uh, not have um, negatively affect us. And then I think the other piece is that nature al- already provides so many values to us, but we, un- we, we still underutilize nature. And so to invest in major programs globally to figure out how to better use the species around us uh, to create better environments for humans and and environments that bring us joy and pleasure and health and do so in an equitable way. And I think all of that can sound very um, starry-eyed, but the truth is, in, in writing this book and in writing my previous book, Never Home Alone, what I found is that around the world, there are lots of people who want to work toward these goals. And I've been really heartened recently by interactions with architects who are eager to redesign cities, redesign apartment complexes in ways that build the value of biodiversity back into daily life. And, and so I'm actually hopeful that we can be really ambitious and it's going to be patchy initially. But but I think we can build toward much more optimistic futures with regard to our relationship to the rest of life.
0: And now reflecting a little bit on the bigger picture, although we already touched o- uh, upon it. Um, so why is it important for our society to be more reflective as opposed to reactive to what we do?
1: Climate change provides a good example of the value of being reflective rather than reactive. That our, our default human response to climate change right now is to wait until disaster strikes and then respond to that disaster. Mm. And that is a very, very expensive way to respond to climate change. Um, you know, where I live in North Carolina, we're watching houses fall into the ocean. I mean, every month a house falls into the ocean. And, and then responding to that problem w- when it happens. And that reactive response is really expensive, um, it's polluting, and it invariably benefits the rich relative to the the rest. If we're reflective, we can step back and look at these longer stories and plan ahead in in ways that benefit as many people as possible and do so strategically. And I have an example in this, this regard that it was almost in the book, but then, then it, it got cut like 10 different times, which often like the best examples are because they're sort of too sweet for the book. They <laughs> don't quite work. Um, and it comes from the Cloaca Maxima in ancient Rome. So Cloaca Maxima was actually built by the Etruscans before the Romans uh, some 4,000 years ago as a stormwater drain under what is now the city of Rome. And And by the time of the Romans, the Romans were already writing about what amazing forethought the Etruscans had to build this really big and really rugged wastewater uh, and stormwater system that that still works beneath the city. Amazingly, in the 1600s, writers were still writing that it's amazing that the, the, the Cloica Maxima built by the Etruscans, improved by the Romans, still works beneath the city of Rome. And if you go to Rome today, you can still still see the Clayca Maxima that still works beneath the city of Rome. Whoa. And and so to me, the lesson in that story is that if we're ambitious in what we build, we can build it in ways that benefit generations to come. And, and so it benefits us to be ambitious, it benefits us to be reflective. But by the same token, Every day we build enormous infrastructure that will last hundreds, if not thousands of years that doesn't bear in mind the far future and often engenders futures that our descendants will not forgive us for. And, And so to step back then, my point here is that whatever we do, we're doing things that change the future and so we really need to be reflective enough to make the changes for the future that are going to have these long-term benefits and they're often hard things to do you know I um, at one point I was asked by the legislature uh, the state government in my state to help bring climate change seminars to the legislators and I was talking to a staffer to that one of the legislators in the asked the staffer, like, what time horizon do you want us to talk about? And I was thinking that they want to know about 2050 or 2100, maybe 2200. And the staffer said anything in the next month or so would be really good. (sighs) And and I understand that the pull of the immediate is intense. You know, our email boxes are full of things we need to do immediately. Uh, But somebody has to be stepping back. To, to look at this bigger picture and, and see where we're going. And it can't, it can't be ecologists and evolutionary biologists on our own because we, we don't have the, the skills. It needs to be teams of people, uh, interdisciplinary teams of artists and historians and social scientists uh, and engineers that are coming together to be reflective together. And for the young, young scholars out there this is totally possible. Um, and it's the way we'll tackle these, these big challenges. And, and I would suggest that from my own personal experience, it's also much more fun to be able to work with people who know things you don't know. And, And so this is my great hope that young people listening to this can gather together across disciplines to be reflective about the future and to, to plan, to build their own cloaca maximas, uh, that will benefit people for many years to come.
0: Yeah, absolutely love the optimism. (laughs) So for writing your book, what discoveries in your research surprised you the most?
1: Um, What discoveries in my research surprised me the most? Uh, I I think what often surprises me is as a writer, I get to combine observations from different fields that, that didn't necessarily sit next to each other before. And so sometimes something that becomes obvious in writing is not obvious to the scientific community. And so an example of that is that conservation biologists have talked a lot about conservation corridors in the last years. And the idea here is that if you have two islands of habitat and you connect them by a strip of habitat of the same type, so you have two patches of forest and you you plant a forest between them, It makes it easier for animals to move back and forth and it's useful for conservation. And it's especially useful for conservation in light of climate change because species can move through these corridors to move north in the northern hemisphere to find their future climates. So this is is well documented, literally thousands of papers about this. And one of the biggest conclusions of this literature is that the bigger the corridor is, the more kinds of species will move through it. What seemed to have gone totally unnoticed until I started writing about this is that this also applies to things like cities and agriculture. And so the bigger the connections we make between our cities, the easier it is for species in cities to move relative to species in wild forests. And so the best corridors we've actually made on earth are for city species to move. And, and that seemed not to have been noticed. And so it wasn't a scientific discovery, like a, a moment in the lab, aha. But it was like the, this, this thing that we know when applied to this new context yields this conclusion that we'd kind of been missing. And so that would be one element. Um, what would be another example like that? Uh, another more sort of lab focused version would be that we started a number of years ago. Uh, often when I give talks about uh, biodiversity, people will ask about what good is this species? What good is that species? And as an ecologist, I hated that. It drove me nuts because I just like these species. They're interesting. They're beautiful. They have their own story. But eventually I started to take that question seriously and to recognize that part of people, what people were saying is, well, h- how does this relate to my life? How should I think about this species um, as something more than, than bad? And so we started to systematically look at species In people's daily environments to see what use could they have for humanity. And, And what we found was basically everywhere we looked, we were finding values of these species. And so we looked to camel crickets, which live in basements often, they're cave crickets that have moved into houses. And we found in camel crickets, bacteria that can break down the waste of the paper industry. We looked to paper wasps nesting on people's houses, and we found new kinds of yeast that can make new kinds of beers. Um, and, and then, then we, we just kept finding examples. We looked at the skin of fish and we found a fungus that can help to preserve food. And, and so that was really exciting, both because we had these examples. And then as I looked through the literature, there were these examples all over the place, but they just hadn't been combined in one place. And, and, and so, I mean, that was a fun kind of discovery because it was a, a way for me to see this extraordinary value, untapped value of nature, and and how potentially accessible that value is and back to your earlier question i mean i think this is one of the places where young graduate students have huge opportunities because our ability to study nature we have all these tools now you know we have tremendous genetics tools we have metabolomics tools we can study volatiles and so if we combine those with the fact that most of the species around us we've never studied before the, the ease of st- finding useful species almost anywhere. Uh, I mean, it can be in anybody's PhD thesis. You can find, I promise you, a species that's, that's useful to humans that we didn't know was useful. And so for me, that's, that's a, a, a cool kind of discovery.
0: And what would be your speculative fiction book if you were writing one?
1: Oh, that's a good question. If I was to write a speculative fiction book, Uh, maybe maybe it would be interesting to write from the perspective if humans manage the earth the way that leafcutter ants manage the earth you know what would that what that what would that world look like um and it could have different dimensions you know and so one version of the world you know we behave with each other the way ants behave with each other in other dimensions of it we just adopt their other systems their system of farming um And so I think there's sort of a number of scenarios there that are intriguing. What what would your speculative fiction book be about this, Galena?
0: Something to do perhaps with no disease. I don't know.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No COVID (laughs) would be a good (laughs) speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but so, I I mean, one of the fun things I'm excited about is uh, Cadwell Turnbull is an amazing speculative fiction writer here at NC State, and he's teaching a course on speculative fiction in the fall. And so I'm working with him to bring scientists into his course. So the students who are writers, MFA writers, um, can ask the scientists about the, what are the scientific possibilities, but the students can also provide for the scientists, you know, how do we think about the different social possibilities? And I I don't know quite how that'll work yet, but but I I think it has great potential.
0: Well, this has been a truly thought-provoking discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Um, so I'm I'm currently working on a project that emerged from a series of talks that we called Fermentology. And they're really talks about the history of different kinds of fermented foods. And, and so we'll be pulling that into a book and, and thinking in that process about what the history of fermented foods, which goes back, at least 40,000 years and probably much longer, tells us about the future of sustainable foods. And, and, and so th- that's really a project where I'm the sort of the circus master and, and there are, there are um, many amazing performers in the circus and we're, we're doing it all together. So that, that I'm working on right now. Um, in the future, one of the things I'm trying to do, and I'm not quite sure how to do it yet, is to try to think about how best to bring people together to think from their own disciplines about what they might already know about the future. And, and, and so if you bring disease ecologists together, what do they already see as being obvious about the future that others might miss? If you bring um, evolutionary biologists together, if you bring uh, digital learning people together and how do we make those secret futures that they see more public? And so I'm interested in how best to do that. And and I was partially motivated in this by the recognition that disease ecologists have been talking about a, a COVID pandemic for like 40 years. I mean, every disease ecology meeting you go to, somebody mentioned something that was going to happen like COVID. And there are even maps from the 2010 that highlight uh, the the parts of China where something like Covid was most likely uh, and and so the disease ecologists all knew that something like this was coming. They couldn't say when it was coming, um but they they told each other about it again and again and again. but the rest of the world didn't hear. And so how do we bring those secret futures up into a more public discussion? And I don't know how best to do it, but that I'm very interested in thinking about that.
0: That sounds super exciting. <laughs>
1: Oh, wonderful. Well, after we're done, I'll ask your feedback and how best to do it.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: The the easiest way to find more information about my work is at the Rob Dunn lab. If you just Google Rob Dunn lab, it'll come up. And, um, my books are all available on Amazon, different, different of the books are uh, from different publishers. Um, but, but you can find A Natural History of the Future on Amazon and then the other book that came out this year, uh, Delicious, which is about the evolution of flavor. Uh, and I, I, hope, I hope they enjoy them.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, what, what a great pleasure. Th- thank you for what you're doing here. It's wonderful.